Good morning. I ask you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to continue in a series in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 12 through 30 today. Already a beautiful, wonderful morning. Got to witness a baptism in a cool mountain stream. <laughs> Got to uh, experience a time with all those babies and just kind of think about what God's going to do in and through their life, and we're thankful for them. This afternoon, I do want to mention that at 4, we have, you saw it on our rundown earlier, at 4 p.m., we have an informational meeting about our mission trip this year, Serving the Scent in the Summer, and we would love for you to come. I think we've already had two of those and had over 50 in each one. God's really blessed, and we're looking between 70 and 100 volunteers to serve this summer in, uh, in our, our missionaries. So, Please come if you have any interest whatsoever, any inclination that you might come in today at 4. And then at 5 o'clock, we'll meet back in this room together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I'm thankful for this opportunity. We've done, we did this, and the Lord really blessed in the, in the fall. And people ask me about this. I love a service where the body of Christ can come together in one place at one time and just focus in on what Christ Jesus has done for us through his death on the cross and what that means. So we'll have a time of singing, a time of looking to the word, a time of partaking together. People ask about doing it in the evening. I go with my old theologian, Andrew Fuller, who said that it is known as the Lord's Supper, not the Lord's breakfast. So this is the way it's supposed to be in the evening tonight. So we thank God for that opportunity and we would love for you to be here and be a part of that as a body as we partake it together. In Philippians, we have been looking, we started chapter 2 there last week, and Paul has taken us to this mountaintop, if you will, in Philippians 2, especially verses 5 through 11, where he takes us to this mountaintop, and you look out over all that is Christ Jesus, all that he has done. He's emptied himself. He gave of himself. He did not grasp his rights as God as something to hold on to, but let go of them to become flesh, and he died on a cross, even a cross, it says, so that also now he is fully exalted. He, and he has the name that is above every name, and at every uh, Christ Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So Paul has shown us that, and we begin uh, Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 12, with a therefore. So if we're going to consider what comes next, we must consider where he just took us. What he just took us on, that mountaintop of Christ Jesus looking out over the splendors of what Christ has done. Therefore, my beloved, he says, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek 
their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that surely I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For nearly, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and now we ask that you would take it through the power of your spirit and apply it to our hearts and our lives. May we not leave this place the same way we came in. Help us, Father, to be more devoted to you, more devoted to your truth. Help us to hold fast, just as your word says, hold fast to the word of life. And so, God, help Jesus Christ this morning be exalted as he already has been and continues to be now. Be exalted above every other name. And Father, may every one of us in this room compliantly, willfully, joyfully bow our knee to our Savior and our Lord. All of this we ask in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I believe the central verse of Philippians is Philippians 1.27. Paul is encouraging the Philippian believers to do something. And he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or maps and I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not being frightened in anything by your opponents. Paul here is giving them the central desire. He is writing, uh, having been in prison and is in prison at the moment, chained to a guard. He is writing to them and letting them know of the joy he has for them, even in his difficult circumstances. And what Paul knows is that there is going to be many things in the life of their church and in their individual lives that are going to seek to destroy them, tear them down, and hopefully cause them to leave their faith. Hopefully cause them to move on. There's going the implication here for the Apostle Paul, and there's going to be all kind of threats around them. They have the threat of external persecution. He says, don't be frightened by your opponents. Paul, having preached the gospel, would be th- is thrown into prison. So he's writing at the very moment of being persecuted. He says, so don't be frightened by them. Of course, Paul knows what Jesus himself taught. Don't fear man who can only take your life. Fear the one who can take both life and soul and cast them into hell. Paul says, just as Revelation 12 tells us about, the, about how to defeat the devil and Satan himself, is by the blood of the lamb, of the word of the testimony, and we're not afraid even to die. Paul says, whatever persecution comes, no one can snatch you out of the hands of God. So don't let that scare you. He also says, you need to know that suffering is going to come. He continues and he says in verse 29, for it has been granted to you that, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Many times suffering comes and it causes us to lose heart. It causes us maybe to turn away. It causes us to think that God might not be in control. But Paul says, even your suffering is for the glory of Christ and it has purpose. 
Whatever the persecution may come, whatever the suffering may be, all of it is for God's glory and it has purpose. Don't let these things tear you or move you away from the faith. Stay firm. And then, not only that, he says there could be some internal disunity. He encourages them to have one mind and one spirit. While you may have some external pressure, you may have some suffering that comes up into your individual life and into your church, what we also are threatened from every day is that from within there may be disunity that seeks to destroy us. Not just externally, but from within. So Paul says, you've got to strive. You've got to work. You've got to work together side by side for the faith of the gospel with one mind and with one spirit. Strive for this unity. Each of these could possibly cause someone to leave their faith, Paul knows. Each of these could possibly cause someone to, to move away from him. So Paul, who has already taken them to the mountaintop, if you will, he's already shown them the glories of, of Christ Jesus, of what he's done, how he endured humiliation and suffering, how he did not claim his rights but let them go as God, how he took on flesh to redeem flesh through death, even death on a cross, and how now Jesus Christ is exalted the name above every name and every knee and every tongue will bow to him it's Jesus who saves us it's Jesus who reigns over us it's Jesus who advocates for all of his children and whatever we are facing even at this moment in time in 2022 in Taylor South Carolina and beyond whatever we're facing it's not much different if anything at all different than what the Apostle Paul and the Philippians were facing we're still facing a world that seeks to tear the church apart. We're still facing a devil who seeks to destroy the testimony of saints and believers in any way he possibly can. In fact, in some ways, Paul who's being persecuted and chained to a guard. We haven't faced that yet, but who knows? It may be coming. And what Paul is encouraging is saying is this, what you can't do in any of these things, in any of these difficulties, what you can't do is turn away from Christ. He's all we have. He's everything we've seen. So he takes them to this mountaintop to see the glories of Christ and how we've trusted in him and he'll never let us down. He wins and we win with him, as Paul says. So we fight for unity and we don't worry about our enemies and our suffering has a purpose. Therefore, Paul is going to bring us down from the mountaintop into the nitty-gritty of everyday life. He's going to show us, as he already has in chapter 2, of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And now he's going to bring us down and get really practical in how this works out each and every day. He gets really practical in light of what Christ has done, his person and his work. Now, he says, you need to keep obeying. Even when it's hard, you need to keep following him. Don't grumble or complain. We'll come back to that in a little bit. That's a good one for you, all of us. You need to know that your neighbors are a crooked and perverse generation. So you have to not look to them as the standard. You become the standard as you shine your lights before them. Paul even says, you need to know I'm going to be executed soon. So rejoice with me, he says. He gets down from that mountaintop into the nitty-gritty of how does this now play out when he tells us back in, in verse 2 of chapter 2 that we must have the mind of Christ in us. How does this mind play out in the nitty-gritty of everyday life? What's the practical outworking of this mind of Christ? Paul says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation 
with fear and trembling. I believe it's this verse that becomes the key to this next section, what Paul is calling us to do. This is an imperative. He's telling us. He's commanding us to do something. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If we're going to face the external pressures, the internal pressures, the suffering that this life has, we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says. And how does that look for us? The first way he says is we must work out our own salvation with joyful obedience. With joyful obedience. Work out your salvation sounds weird to us if you're uh, any part of our church or any part of the Christian tradition. I mean, ultimately, we know as, as evangelicals, as believers, as good Baptists, we know that we cannot save ourselves. It is not by works that we have earned salvation. What that means is there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing we could have ever done. There's no work we could have accomplished. There's no thing we could have done. There's no list that we could have checked off in order to earn salvation. Our salvation comes to us only by faith and trusting in Jesus Christ. So there's no salvation by works, ultimately. We're saved by faith. There's a key word here that I think is important for us to understand. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at the word sanctification. This morning, we look at the word justification. And this word justification has, has really two meanings uh, together that work together in the scriptures. The first is, it means that we are declared righteous. Through justification, we are declared righteous. We have not earned anything to earn righteousness. We have not done anything on our part to do it. It's only simply the declaration of God over us. The word gives us this idea of a courtroom, of judgment, and the idea that the Lord God is there. He's the judge. He's in charge, and he is laying the gavel down, and he's declaring Josh Powell righteous. It's his declaration, not something I've done, not something I can accomplish. God has declared me righteous. And how has he declared me righteous? Not on my works, as I said, but on the work that Christ Jesus did for me. Based upon the righteousness of Christ, I am now righteous. So now I am in him who is Christ. And now because of what Christ has done and me trusting and believing in him by faith with that in and of itself is a gift from God. Now I am declared righteous before him, and I am his child. By faith alone, we're declared righteous in God. But there's another aspect the scriptures speak of. And that's not just the declaration of righteousness, but it's also the demonstration of our righteousness. We are declared righteous by God. It is his work. God justifies, not ourselves. But our righteousness will be demonstrated in how we live. So if you have been declared righteous, then you will demonstrate that righteousness in how you live in a life of obedience. James puts it like this. He's, he's kind of given an argument from, from ad absurdium, if you will. This is absurd to think of. He says, show me your faith apart from your works. What James knows is that's impossible. Show me your faith apart from your works. You say, I have faith. Well, let me see it. And if you say, I have faith, then it should be seen and evident by how you do and how you act and how you behave toward others and toward God. So James says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, I've been declared righteous by God through faith, and now I am going to live a life that demonstrates that righteousness, justifies it out, and shows that it's there. As Jesus even himself says, you will know them by their fruit. How do they live that demonstrates what they believe? So if you say you've received salvation this morning, if you say you've received salvation in Christ and you are saved from your sins and from the Lord, then your life will be different than it was before. 
Your life will bear out a witness and a testimony of that faith that you had received. Your, your life will bear out a difference in a testimony of the fact that you are no longer following after the things of this world, but trusting in the one who is Lord and Savior over all. You have repented of those things, and now you turn to him. So there is no Christian who can say they have met Christ and found him as Savior and act the same way as they do as a lost person. The child of God has been changed by God and demonstrates that change out by how they live and how they act. And so you say, if you receive salvation, then your life will be different. But I said earlier that working out your salvation comes with a joyful obedience. What makes this joyful? What makes it joyful? When we think about obedience, we oftentimes think about oppression or we think about rules and we don't like rules. We like freedom, right? We don't, we don't want somebody telling us what to do. We want freedom in those things. And so that seems oppressive with the thing about rules. But listen to what John says in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. Whoever says, I know him. John's using this phrase, I know him, as one who believes in Jesus for salvation. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. His word, not mine. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, that's pretty thick, isn't it? When we consider our life and who God is and what he's done for us in saving us, the scripture says if you say you love God, if you say you follow him and you know him as Savior and you don't obey him or keep his commandments, you're a liar. John continues, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. How is it that his commandments aren't burdensome? If we think of commandments oftentimes as, as oppression and, and holding us back and we don't have freedom, then how is it that his commandments are not a burden to us? Well, just consider what Christ has done. Just consider what he just did here in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus left heaven, the throne, all the glories of it, and he let go of it. It's almost like he, he releases it from his hand. He does not claim any rights that are his. He is there in perfect, happy harmony with the Lord God Almighty, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, dancing, rejoicing together in heaven. He leaves all of that to come here. And he humbles himself, taking on flesh, which flesh through sin has been cursed to death, right? So he humbles himself, taking on flesh, and he lives a life of humiliation and humility before God and before others, always keeping the faith, always doing what is right. And then he dies on a cross. Paul says he humbles himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He gives his life up for those who he came to save. He came not to, to, to be served, but to serve, the scripture says, and he gave his life for them. And he dies on the cross, taking the sin of his people upon himself, putting it to death, crushing it finally and completely. And on the third day, he beat death and conquered it all, putting death to death itself and rose again. And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now he is advocating for all of those who believe in him. Now he is sending his spirit out to hunt us down by his glory and for his grace, to save us from our sins. Any one of us who would, who would call upon him, he shall save them. For if you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. 
This is the love of God, that he sent his son to die for you, and he, he first loved us. We don't even know what it is until then. If that's what Christ Jesus has done, then his commandments for us are not burdensome. They're our joy, right? Just think of what he's done for us. Just think of what he's accomplished for us on our behalf. We deserve death and hell, but Christ Jesus came and crushed them both so we can have life and eternity in heaven with him. And so just think of what Christ has accomplished for us, and therefore his commandments don't become burdensome. Now I want to please him. Now I want to honor him with my life. Now I want to give him everything. And when you consider even back that everything is from him, through him, and to him, that the very breath you're breathing even now is a gift from God, that the very fact your heart is beating even at this moment is not something you have conjured up, but God himself has granted you this even very breath and this even very moment to praise him and worship him, then we recognize everything we have is due back to him, right? And so to follow him is not a burden to me, it's my joy. But then think about this. He knows what's best. He created us and he made us. He knows what's best for us. And no matter how many times we think we are smarter, what God has designed for us is always what's best for us, right? And in finding him and following after him, we have life and we have it abundantly. We have joy that is increasing every single day because he knows what's best. So his commandments are not a burdensome, but they're a joy. Look at what he's done. Look at what he's given us. And here Paul says, this is our great joy. They're not oppressive. They're not oppressive. You've been saved by him. And now you get to please him and honor him with your life. Not from compulsion but from delight. I never forget when I heard that the problem, especially amongst us in the South, and I'm from here, South Carolina, so I can talk about us. The problem that we have even here is not disbelief. That's not our greatest fear around here is disbelief, I think. I think our greater fear is what's called practical atheism. Practical atheism is simple. We believe in God. We believe even in his son, Jesus Christ. We celebrate Christmas, virgin birth. We celebrate Easter, died on a cross and rose again. We celebrate all the great truths of God's word. We believe in all of those things, yet we act every single day as if God doesn't exist. This is the great fear that we must have. And what Paul says, if you keep that up, if you do that, this world will crush you and destroy you. The devil's looking to destroy. He even calls Epaphroditus, my fellow soldier. We fight this together. He's looking to pull you away. He's looking to cause you to fall and to stumble. He wants everything around your life to pull you away from what is true and what is right and what is glorious, and that's Jesus Christ himself. Paul says you must not only believe those things, but act accordingly, knowing that the day of Christ is coming that we get to meet him face to face and get an answer, give an answer to it all. And he's a good and gracious God unless, unless we reject him and his word and his truth. So live worthy of the gospel, he says. Live worthy of the gospel. Work it out in joyful obedience, knowing this is what's best for you. But not only that, work out your salvation in joyful contentment, he says. In joyful contentment. The Philippians need patient, selfless contentment, Paul is arguing. Patient, selfless contentment. And only that patient and selfless contentment can help you to do all things without grumbling or complaining. This is one of my favorite verses in church as a pastor. 
I had a sweet lady. Her name's Helen. It's her real name. You can look her up later. And so I had this lady, Helen, who always started with me a sentence like this. Hey, pastor, I've got a complaint. So I tried everything I could. I'd say, right there's the complaint box, and I'd point to the trash can. You know what I'm saying? I did everything I could. <laughs> Here it is. I told her. I, I was lovingly and cared for her and said, hey, Miss Helen, if you come to me and say, Josh, can I ask you a question? It's going to start our conversation off on a better foot than I've got a complaint. You know what I'm saying? Hey, I've got something to ask you. So I was like, come on, Miss Helen, just help me out here. Finally, she d- wouldn't listen. I've got a complaint. And I said, well, I've got a verse. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. So before I hear your complaint, Jesus needs to hear it. You need to go in there and pray. (laughs) Miss Helen left the church. It's okay. Um, (laughs) Love her. Love her to death. She's probably still in heaven. I think she's already passed away. (laughs) Paul is saying there's comes this idea of doing all things without grumbling or complaining comes from a heart that finds contentment in Christ Jesus. It comes from a heart that finds contentment. Instead of being concerned so much about yourself and injuries or your personal rights or your flow of your day and what may be changing in your life, instead of being concerned about those things, Paul is saying, let's focus on others. Let's focus on somebody else. He tells us this in in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And then he says, Jesus did that. Jesus counted you more significant than even his glories in heaven. And he left heaven to came to earth and died for you. Jesus is our example. And then he goes on. Paul said, I did that in verse 17. Paul says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. I give myself for you, he said. I'm glad whatever it is, well, even if I have to die, I give myself for you. Timothy did it. And really, these last two paragraphs of chapter, chapter 2 are examples that we have in the faith. Paul is saying, look at Timothy. He's the one who is genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek, speaking of the others, they all seek their own interests, but not those, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy. You know him. He cares for you. Think of Epaphroditus. It was Epaphroditus that they sent to Paul with the care package in prison and the letter that they offered to him. And Epaphroditus goes, and while he's there, all of the people in Philippi hear that Epaphroditus has gotten sick, and Paul says he almost died. So Epaphroditus is so concerned for the Philippians, he wants to get back to them and let them know he's alive and tell them what Christ has done. Both Timothy and Epaphroditus become examples of of joyful obedience and joyful contentment for you. In other words, I think Paul is saying, I know this is not easy. I know this is not easy for us to do, to be content in all things. And he, in thinking that, Paul gives this onslaught because he knew the difficulty. Think about me. I'll give my life for you. But what about Timothy? What about Epaphroditus? They all give their lives for you. They care for you. They love you. They consider you greater than themselves. Look at those examples. So it's not impossible. Look, these are good examples of those who are in Christ and they're content. But he says even more than that, think about Jesus himself and what he did for you. So find contentment in those things because Paul knows that contentment is a rare, rare jewel that we can find. 
Jeremiah Burroughs, writing 500 years ago, named his book The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And he makes that argument very itself, that the very secret of the Christian life of walking every day for Jesus is finding our contentment or satisfaction in Jesus and Jesus alone. Paul will address this several times, but none more powerful than Philippians chapter 4, by the way. Philippians 4 verse 11. Paul is writing... Paul is writing and he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Whatever my circumstances are, I'm to be content. And then Paul says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. I've had a little and I've had a lot, Paul says. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul's circumstances does not change or do not change his contentment in the Lord. Whatever it is, sometimes he's got a lot, sometimes he's got a little, sometimes he's suffering, sometimes he's changed, sometimes he's rejoicing with the Philippians and seeing the church being built. Whatever the situation is, he has learned that the the, the, the whole secret to it all is contentment in Christ. His relationship with Christ, his love that he has in Christ, and his joy in the Lord does not change whatever his circumstances are. And he ends that whole section, a lot and a little contentment, by saying, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That I can do all things verse is so clear here. But it is not about hitting a free throw. It's not about throwing a TD. It's not about ripping a phone book in half. You ever seen someone do that? That's not what this verse is about at all. This verse is about every single day getting up and knowing that your greatest treasure is Jesus Christ and him alone. Knowing that every single day, whatever circumstance may be, whatever difficulty you may find, and if you've got a lot, thank Jesus because he's given you a lot. If you've got a little, thank Jesus because he cares for you through it all. Whatever your situation may be, you find your satisfaction and contentment in Christ Jesus, Paul says. And if you say that's hard, you can do it because Christ is in you. Christ is in you. It's about learning and knowing that your great treasure is found in Jesus and him alone. And whatever you have or whatever you don't have in this world doesn't change what you have in Christ. So he says, you hold fast, not to the things of this world, but you hold fast to the word of life, the word of Christ. And you know there's a day coming when you will meet him face to face. And what's in this world will not bring you satisfaction then. You can't claim it at all on that point. You can't pull that out to Jesus and say, here's why you should let me in because look at all I've accumulated here. In fact, Paul says that this world is a crooked and perverse generation. Don't look to them as your example. Look to Christ Jesus as your hope. Trust in him. Hold fast to him. Hold on to him in every way. In every way. Whatever your circumstances are, Christ Jesus hasn't left you. And the inheritance you build up in this life is what moth and rust will destroy. But the inheritance we have in heaven, nothing can take away from us. So hold fast to Christ, Paul says. Don't buy into the idea that this world can really give you anything that can satisfy you. Here he's referring back to the Israelites in the wilderness. They grumbled and complained, as Exodus 15 says. Or Deuteronomy 32, 5, the Lord looks at the Israelites and wilderness and says, they're no longer my children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. And what Paul says is the reason why they were blemished and became crooked and twisted is because they didn't trust in the one and find his contentment in him. They didn't trust in God alone. They were looking for something else. What God has provided is not enough. I need more. What God has done is not enough. I need more. 
So what he's saying to us is this. Don't compare yourself to this world. Don't look around. This is a crooked and twisted. And he's not doing this in some pejorative term to put the world down. What he's saying is, is they put their trust in things that cannot satisfy them. They put their trust in things that cannot bring them joy. They put their trust in things that cannot save them at all. That's crooked and that's twisted. Don't do that. You, you shine as a light to them. You shine as a light. Stand out for the glory of God. Work out your own salvation. Joyful contentment. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, he says. This idea of fear is not the idea that you need to be terrified like if you found yourself face to face with a hangry lion. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is this. It's a wholesome, healthy, reverential awe. It is God who saves me. But more than that, it is God who made me. It is God who fashioned me into his own image and breathed life into me. It is God who sustains me with his, with his own breath and with the, the heart beating within my chest. It's God who makes that happen. It's God who keeps me. It's God who holds me. It's God who protects me. It's God who provides for me. It's all of him. And so we don't come to him flippantly as if he's just another buddy. We don't refer to him flippantly as if he's just another man upstairs. What we say is he's the holy God who rules and reigns over all things. And I am his child and he is my father and I love him and he loves me. That's what fear means. And I want to please him because he has done everything for me and everything I have is from him. So I want to live my life for him. It's a clear understanding and realization that we are absolutely dependent upon him. And whatever he says goes, even for my life, even for my life. And this is a sense in which as a Christian living out our lives we must have every desire to be faithful. We know that it is Jesus who saves us. We know that it's Jesus who works in us. We know that it's Jesus in whom we are completely dependent on. We know that he's the one who has all the answers and we must answer to ultimately him. And in this letter of joy continuously, where Paul is emphasizing joy, 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 he says, in your joy you must operate in fear and trembling in reverential awe of the one who has gave us everything. The gladness that believers experience in the Lord grows out of the fertile soil of fearing God with reverential awe. Our joy comes in that it's not just anybody that saved me. It's the king of the universe. It's not just anybody that sustains me. It's the only one who could, the king of the universe. And we live for him. So the question for us, the question for you today is this, is God at work in you? Is God at work in you? Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Is God working in your life? Is he moving? Is he calling you? Is he bringing you to his word? Is he giving you a heart and passion for prayer to know him more deeply and follow after him? As he's speaking to you and the most scary place you can possibly be is sitting here today and says, I don't know if God's at work in my life. Well, here's what the Lord says. And the Lord says this with all clarity and the Lord says this with all humility, but he also says this, for all of us to hear, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. If you don't know God's at work, why are you waiting there? 
Why are you still sitting there? Come to Christ. Find him. The only hope you have is that he moves in you, shapes you, molds you, saves you, redeems you, gives you everything. He is satisfaction. If you don't know if God's at work, then my fear for you is that he's not. But he can be. Simply you respond by faith and trust in him. Call upon the name of the Lord. He is not far from you now. No matter how far you think you have moved from him, he is closer to you than your very fingertips. And all you've got to do is call on him. And he's here. No matter how this world tries to beat you up and tear you down, Jesus has come to give you life and contentment and joy and satisfaction. He's here. All you've got to do is call on him. Christian, do you live a life of joyful obedience or is it just lip service on a Sunday? If that's the case, this place will crush you. This world will crush you. But Christ is the one who comes for us. And though we are hard-pressed, we will never be crushed with Christ. Christian, do you live a life of joyful contentment? Are you mad or angry at the world all the time, thinking it deserves to give you something, and you deserve something from it? It's crooked and twisted, man. But it's Christ who brings truth. And he is not far from you. All you need to do is call on him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, for it is good. We thank you for your truth, Father, for upon this truth we can build our lives. And so, God, I pray that that's the case this morning, that you are working right now on hearts and lives in this room, that you're moving, that you're shaping, that you're showing your glory even more clearly in Christ today. And so that everybody in this room knows today in fear and trembling knows that it is Jesus Christ who rules and reigns. It is Jesus Christ who saves and can save them. And no one leaves this place still trusting in anything other than Jesus. God, make that happen even now through your spirit. Father, we thank you. There's a Christian here today who's been claiming Christ for some time, but their life only looks like lip service. Even now through your spirit, draw them back to yourself to show them the joy, the joy of contentment and obedience that they can find in their Savior. God, help us all to live for you, for your glory and for your name. If you're here today and you're not sure if God is moving, we'd love to speak to you that, but maybe God is moving. Maybe he's pulling his, your heart back to him. I'll be standing here at the front. We'd love to talk to you about how God can move move and work in your life. If you want to join us to be a part of our church, we'll be standing here ready to receive you. Let's stand together and pray.